Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. This week on Product Love, I talked to Kyle, the VP of Market Strategy at OpenView. OpenView is an expansion stage venture capital firm. So Kyle and I talked about pricing and the ever so coveted product market fit. So first, let's talk about pricing. Pricing is obviously important when we look at product market fit because like Kyle says, to have the right product for the right customers, you also have to have the right price where you can make money off of it. Seems obvious, but isn't always in today's tech marketplace. But that leads me a question. Why do product managers ignore pricing so much? No one teaches about it. There's really not that many places you can learn about it. And it's often, I think, seen as some sort of dark art. And in startups especially, I think there's this fear of asking for too much money, of losing that key deal over, quote unquote, a small sum of money. But sometimes the opposite can happen, where enterprises are afraid to buy a product that costs too little and by extension is thought of by the enterprise as incomplete or non-enterprise. And it leads to another question. Product managers don't own pricing, who does? The startup CEO, the sales leader? Those each come with some serious issues. So I wanna know, how do you approach pricing and why? Let me know at eBodic on Twitter or reach out to me at eBodic at pendo.io. Well, welcome over to Product. I am here today with Kyle from OpenView. Kyle, why don't you kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Definitely. Thanks for having me on, Eric. So I've spent the last about 10 years focusing on helping technology companies, specifically subscription SaaS businesses, around sustainable revenue growth and doing that through monetizing their customers, through their market strategy, and through better understanding their customers and their competitors. Awesome. And what did you do prior to OpenView? Before OpenView, I was at a strategy consulting firm called Simon Kucher. It's not the most well-known, but they're the market leaders in pricing strategy. I've actually got over a thousand employees worldwide that work on pricing. When I was there, we were pricing everything from diapers to caskets, truly cradle to grave, but with the large number of unicorns thrown into the mix. Interesting. So very different when you're talking about, you know, diapers or caskets and SaaS software? <laughs> Very different. I uh, Most of my time when I was there, I did focus on SaaS and subscription-based businesses, and we had others that focused on other markets. But yeah, I was working with a number of pre-IPO companies. They had great product experiences. They had been growing their customer base really rapidly, but they were looking to get more profitable in their growth. And they just felt like they were leaving money on the table because so much of the product experience had improved, but they hadn't necessarily monetized that. So talk to me about the process of moving over to OpenView. You know, what made you make that jump? So I was looking to get more in-house, feel more connected. You know, when you work in consulting, you don't always see the impact of what you do. You get brought in on a short-term basis. And I really wanted to be much closer to the operations of the company. And with OpenView, it was a really great opportunity to kind of continue acting almost like a consultant, but 
being a shared resource for portfolio companies where you know we sit on the board, we're long-term investors, and so I can go work on strategic projects with the company, but then I stay really closely connected with them through implementation and through follow-on work. So it, it's really great to have that opportunity to kind of have the best of both worlds. And for me, I really enjoyed working with earlier companies who tend to not be able to afford consulting services. And so those are more fun companies to work with. They don't have a whole lot of baggage, internal politics. They're really hungry for new ideas. And so it's just great, great to work with them. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, marketing strategy, pricing strategy, go-to-market positioning, that particular area. And I, I know I probably covered a lot there and how that relates to product management. So to me, market strategy and a lot of the work that I do is about finding product market fit. And so where can you find pockets of customers that are the best potential markets to go after for your product, where the product experience fits what they're looking for. You can acquire those customers really efficiently. There's enough of them that you can build a large and enduring business off of it. And where you have differentiation in the market where your product uniquely serves that need. And so when all of those things are in synergy, then you have a lot of pricing power and you can offer really great packages and product experiences for them. And so a lot of the work that I do is actually collaborating across teams. It's very cross-functional in nature because it might mean there's product management gaps to really build product experiences towards target segments, or you have a product that really fits one part of the market, but the sales team isn't going after it. So it's really linking folks in the organization. And a lot of it is you know, similar to the role of like a product marketing team at a, at a SaaS company. So you touched on something that I think I want to make sure you emphasize, or, or at least we talk about, and that's, you know, pricing and its impact on product market fit. Is pricing an essential aspect of product market fit? I think it definitely is. I mean, it's one of, so when you look at product market fit, you have to have the right product for the right customer, and you have to have the right price where you can actually make money off of it. So you can build a profitable business. You can have healthy unit economics that can support spending more on sales and marketing to go after more and more of those. If you have a you know a low price offering in the market or you're a freemium player, but you're going after the enterprise, you could find that you're not really seeing true product market fit because you don't have the pricing model figured out yet. One example in our portfolio is we've got a, a company called Logical that's in the e-discovery space. So it's a legal tech business. And when they started out, they were actually a services business that transformed themselves into a software business. They started as a you know annual subscription model, very traditional SaaS type of business. But through you know working with them and, and talking to their customers, we found that for a lot of law firms, the vast majority of law firms have less than 10 attorneys. They can't really afford to buy products on an upfront annual basis. It's really hard for them to predict their usage. It's hard for them to bill back those costs to their clients. And so we introduced a pay-as-you-go model, and that allowed them to go Actually, I think they within the first year of implementing their pay-as-you-go model, they increased their customer base by about 500%. And that was really big for helping them secure a Series B round of funding. And so for them, it was when they nailed that intersection between what's the market they're going after, what does their product do really well, and how can they innovate on the pricing model to efficiently serve that market? That's when they truly unlocked growth. So do you think... 
you know, if you talk to a, a you know a common product manager, I don't, I don't mean common, but an average product manager, or even an average product leader, do you think they understand the importance of pricing and in, in product market fit? Absolutely not. <laughs> right? It's not something that's taught. It's I mean, folks on the product teams have a lot on their plate. It's a tough job. But pricing has historically not been something that people are really trained on. It's seen as kind of a dark art in some ways. Product folks aren't asking pricing-related questions. They don't necessarily know what's involved in figuring out pricing with customers. And so it's something that tends to fall to like the CEO of a company sometimes, or you outsource it. But to me, it's if I think about if I'm deciding on what products to launch, don't you want to know what's the revenue potential from the product, which can only you can only really find out by understanding how much people will pay for that product, if they'd actually pay for that product and why they pay for that specific product over other products on the market. So pricing to me is extremely important to product managers, but it's too easily ignored. And do you think it's ignored because it's seen as kind of this dark art? Why do you think it's ignored? I mean, it's certainly seen as a dark art. If you look at business school curriculums, people don't really have, there's no classes on pricing. There's barely enough classes on product management or folks out there that teach the skills of product management, but they, the number of places where you can really learn about pricing, it's, there's not a whole lot out there that's useful and practical for people. So it's just something that people don't really know how to do. I think it's also very risky uh, when you start talking about pricing. And if, if you're having pricing conversations with a customer, you know, are you stepping on the toes of their account manager or their sales rep? All of a sudden, you could kind of step in something that you didn't want to step in. And pricing decisions tend to be cross-functional in nature. You need to get the sales team on board, marketing team on board, finance team, and the, the leadership of the company. And so I think because people don't really feel like they have the skills to work on pricing, but then also if they don't have the skills and it's something that's so visible and risky, you know, why would you put your neck out there to work on it? So talk to me about how people should approach pricing, like if, especially at the earliest stage, right? Because I, I think that's when there's the most unknowns. Yeah, at the earliest stage, I mean, to me, at the, even at the earliest stage, you might not really have a full product team. It might be, you know, one product manager working with the CEO at that point or, or a couple of product folks. I always recommend asking pricing related questions in customer development interviews. So when you're trying to understand the product needs, it makes sure that you have something that it's not necessarily asking people like how much would you pay for X product, but you could ask questions like, you know, what are some alternatives that you would think about to solve this problem that you have or like start sizing up the economic value of the product that you're creating based on like how much time it's saving the customer, what what was the previous approach, who, I guess, how much revenue it generates for them, like what's the real value that you're driving and then also what they think of like how they would budget for the product, making sure you have an understanding of kind of the economic model of that customer and how they're going to pay for your product. That's just super helpful in terms of informing the roadmap and how you should monetize initially. And it even goes to like what, what are the right packages to offer the customer to meet their needs and also the budgets that they have. So I think that's really important and also collaborating with the sales team. So as you're having your first sales conversations, you don't necessarily know 
how much to charge at that point. You probably are, are lowballing the initial price because you don't really want to have any barriers in the way of that initial customer adoption. But having, maybe it's recording those sales conversations, listening to the feedback. How does that prospect react when you bring up pricing? Do they really not react at all because it's just you know, not an issue in, in the least? Do, or do they have reservations? Or are the reservations about the pricing level or is it about the model that you've chosen? Because sometimes concerns could be around that the pricing model or the metric that you're charging isn't seen as fair, but the price point itself is totally fine. So making sure there's a great feedback loop between those initial sales conversations and the product team, I think is, is a great way to get some of that initial learning so you touched on a lot of things I want to dig into there, in particular, probably focus on lowballing and value metrics, right? Let's start with lowballing. Is it a bad idea to have a lower price to start with, especially if you're trying to enter into a marketplace? It's not a bad idea, but I think that people need to figure out when's the right time to start increasing that price, right? So I think there's a couple of things. One is if you have some beta customers, you still have a very early product, it's not fully built out. And there's an expectation that they're providing feedback, them getting their usage and seeing how they use the product. That's extremely valuable for your product development to improve that product. So there's sort of this mutual agreement, like you're giving economic incentives that allow you to collect a lot of really useful insight. So I think it's okay to have you know, a lower price initially to get that initial learning. But when you kind of flip the switch and start monetizing, I think a lot of companies wait too long for that. And that's a major reason why people don't get an initial traction and don't have success when they go out to fundraise. Because to me, if the only reason that you're able to sell a customer is because you're the cheapest in the market, you probably haven't nailed your product market fit yet. But if you can raise prices consistently and you're still able to attract customers and they really value what you're bringing to the table, then I think you've nailed your product market fit. And that's where you have the capabilities to pour fuel on the fire and really scale. Yeah. Do you think people are, are let me rephrase that maybe. Why do you think people are reticent to raise prices? I'm assuming you think people, you know, and by people, I mean product management startups, companies in general, why do you think they're reticent to raise pricing? I mean, I think it sometimes goes back to that idea of, you know, you don't want any barriers in the way of customers adopting the product. I think also a lot of CEOs of new startups, they're very product and tactically focused. They're not coming from the business perspective necessarily or, or a sales background. And I think you also see people think about B2B price sensitivity the way they think about consumers, right? So they think from their experience or maybe like they're a, a bootstrap startup. So anything that's expensive is really difficult for them to, <laughs> to pay for. And so that's something that they're very, they, they pick up on quite a bit. But the reality is a lot of B2B businesses or a lot of B2B situations are just not, don't have the, anywhere near the kind of price sensitivity that B2C situations have. And in fact, some customers that you'll, you'll see are actually hesitant when the price is too low because that indicates to them that the product isn't ready yet or like that kind of raises some red flags for them. Or they might be worried that the business couldn't really be making money off of the price that they're charging. And so that, that has some red flags associated with it. I've actually interviewed customers of some of our portfolio companies who have told me flat out, 
that they had concerns because the price was so low, it didn't seem believable that would actually accomplish the job that they wanted the product to do. And so to me, like if you're selling it to, especially to a large enterprise, it's a very challenging sort of change management process for them to adopt the product. They're taking a bet on the company. There's a lot of resources involved in getting people on board within their company, changing the existing processes, maybe doing integrations. And so for them, price is not really as important as the risk aversion they have in making the wrong choice or you know, looking bad in front of their company and wasting a lot of time and resources. So I just think people underestimate that lack of price sensitivity, especially with medium sized and larger businesses. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when <laughs> I talk to startups and they're like, our big differentiator is price, right? Against an established competitor. I'm like that deer in headlights. <laughs> scares the, That's a bad thing. Scares me. Yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And Unless they, there's the only exception for that. And because I, I recognize a lot of people say, well, but you can really disrupt a market with a low price. If you have a product differentiation that allows you to have way lower costs than anyone else in the market, or you have a way of serving a market that no one had been able to serve before because of your cost structure, the way the product's built, then sure. I mean, be a low cost leader, go after that, like be the no frills provider, go after the low end of the market, have a really efficient distribution strategy. But that's one use case. That's not most companies out there. Yeah. And I assume that that usually works in much more mature markets. Like I, I remember that being a big tenant of the open source movement, right? The cost structures were significantly lower. So they could look at mature markets and say, we're going to have an open source version of XYZ and price significantly lower and disrupt some portion of the market that way. Exactly. Exactly. Or like an AWS experience where they they were able to come in and offer something at a price that would have been extremely disruptive, but they had the economic model to support that. Yeah. And the key obviously being, you know, your your cost structure or your distribution channel structure or whatever structure has to be, the cost of that has to be 10x cheaper for some reason, right? Otherwise, you're not going to be able to cut a price by 5x and, and maintain a real business. Exactly. Exactly. And in most emerging product categories, to your point, it's, it, this is something that's more for mature product categories where you know, even if you have a new disruptive product, people are paying for that type of product out there already and there's a pretty big market for it. But when you're looking at a new product category, it's rarely the case that going out with a kind of a cut rate, super low price is the best move. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, I, I've never thought about at least not extensively, this thought that it's actually a detriment where companies will look at it and be like concerned about, you know, your your product's ability to deliver when the price point is significantly under what they think it should be or maybe what the competition is. And I hear that more times than you'd expect. I also interview a lot of customers of our of our portfolio companies. And some of it too is a lot of companies start with a self-service purchase funnel or, or self-service or some sort of inside sales. It's right. There's generally, it's a lower cost way of getting out to customers, getting that initial usage of the product. And in those environments, people, you know, you're serving the masses and there might seem to be price sensitivity in the market, but 
I think the go-to-market motion and the price sensitivity are super related. Like in that self-service environment, you might observe price sensitivity. But if you start having, you know, building a great sales team that can talk about the value of the product, they can work with the customer on the economic impact and the ROI. They can bring along champions internally all of a sudden price becomes like the last part of the conversation. Price is not even important at that point. And so you get these order of magnitude changes in how much you can charge, like going from $100 a month to $10,000 a month for what is a similar product experience. But because your your go-to-market motion and your resources to selling and servicing that customer are different, just goes to show that there's there's not one price in the market. There's lots of different price points that exist depending on how you reach those different customers. So I, I think we covered a good bit of this, but talk to me a little bit more about how pricing relates to how people make decisions. I mean, that, how much time do you have? I think that- I got uh, hours, hours and hours. <laughs> great. Yeah, I mean, pricing, it's fascinating. There's a lot of interesting overlap between pricing and behavioral psychology. I'm, I worry about people oversimplifying it sometimes, right? You see these, some of these consumer tactics of like, we can build a decoy effect where like there's a classic, you know, economist example where, you know, you have two products at the same price. One's obviously better than the other. So the other is sort of like a, the decoy product that makes the other product look even more valuable. And, and so there's like, there's some of these tactics or like, as you see growth hackers talk about this, like put the most expensive plan on the left of your pricing page so that people really focus on that most expensive plan. I, I worry that there's a lot of attention people pay to the tactics of behavioral pricing and sort of uh, behavioral psychology and how that overlaps with how they price. But to me, the more salient point is just what I think is important with pricing and psychology is that you're really trying to understand how people make decisions about buying your product and pricing is a really important part of that. And, but also like how you communicate value, how they think about what the comparisons are for your products. Are they comparing you to other software? Are they comparing you to something else entirely? And so how you frame those comparisons or like how you show the ROI versus the price of the product and how you talk about the product that can have a major impact on how much people would pay and what they'd buy. I think a great like behavioral pricing example in academic research is just giving people different situations and then asking how much they'd pay for a Corona, right? So if you ask someone, say you're at the beach and you really want a beer and the only place for you to get one is a block away, there's a hole in the wall convenience store that's pretty run down. And so if you had to go buy a Corona there, how much would you pay for it? And then ask another audience, okay, so you're at this beach, you really want a Corona, the only place is a luxury hotel. You're not a, a guest at the hotel, but you can go buy the Corona and bring it back on the beach. How much would you pay for it? And so it's the same product and actually the same experience because they're going to be drinking the Corona on the beach. But when they are thinking that they're going to go buy this at a luxury hotel, they're willing to pay way more than when they think that they're buying it at the hole in the wall convenience store. So to me, understanding like how you talk about the product, how you position it, what's the pitch for the buyer and with the brand that you build around your company, that has really interesting impacts for the price sensitivity of your target customer and just the price that you can charge for your product. So I, I find that aspect of behavioral psychology really interesting and how it overlaps with pricing. 
You know, it's interesting. I was thinking about your example and I was going to come up with one for you right now and see how it might be a little different in a business scenario. So now say you're at the beach and you've decided to open a beer selling stand at the beach, right? And you can have one of your suppliers is the luxury hotel will sell you, you know, a thousand Coronas a day that you need for your beer stand, right? And they have a, a specific price and it's, it's a little bit more. Or you can go to this convenience store in, a, in another beach, right? And open up your stand somewhere else. Same kind of clientele, same beach, same value of location, but you can get it a, a ton cheaper, right? Your thousand. What do you do? Do businesses look at these things differently than consumers would, I guess, is, is the mainstay of my question. So it's interesting how there, so there is some more rationality in a B2B context than consumers, but it's really not as much as you'd think. Like there's still a lot of the sort of behavioral tactics you see in consumer actually work on the business setting as well, just in a, to, like, to less of an extent. So like an example, when you're showcasing different packages to a customer in a sales conversation, you have like a classic good, better, best lineup. If the, and, and maybe let's say you communicate the price of the good is X, the price is better is Y, price of best is Z. If you make the middle product look a lot better by having more, a lot more like features checked off and for not being that much more expensive than the good product, people will be more likely to buy that just from the communication and how you positioned it versus if you like, you could not really change anything, just the communication. And you would see a lot more people go to the good product because they think, okay, I can get started with just this basic functionality. I I have a low budget, but how you show things to folks makes them think that they're getting a better deal or that something's a better value than another product. And that applies even in a B2B context where you'd think people are more rational. Hmm, interesting. So, I mean, are a lot of the pricing strategies that similar from the consumer for a B2C company to a B2B company then? It depends. Oh, in a self-service environment, yes. That's where people are, you know, looking at the pricing page, making decisions on their own as opposed to guided with a sales rep. On the the sales-oriented conversations where it really is a negotiated it's a negotiation and the pricing is not necessarily transparent. You might not communicate pricing at all on your website. That's where I think you still actually can leverage some of the behavioral tactics, but it's, they're different than in the classic consumer world, right? So the tactics that are more relevant are like how you negotiate with the customer. How do you position with them as if they want a discount, they can't just get the discount. They have to, you know, give something up as well, right? They have to, you know, write a case study with you or be a reference or speak at your user conference or whatever. Or, you know, if you're negotiating with them, you start at $100,000, they counter at $70,000, do you meet in the middle or do you go to 90,000 and see where they'll come up? Like, I think a lot of those negotiation elements, you can bring in insights from the behavioral psychology, but it's, it's a different set of tactics to use than on the consumer side. So talk to me about challenges when it comes to pricing strategy. There are a lot. <laughs> to me, the, so some of the, the overarching challenges, I mean, we talked about that people undervalue what they're building Otherwise, to me, that one of them is you don't have a way to expand customers naturally. And so you, can, you sh- should have multiple axes 
at which you can expand a customer over time. And, you know, from the VC perspective, when we're looking at a new investment, we want to make sure that that company has net expansion in their cohort. So their net dollar retention is north of 100%. That they could actually turn off sales and marketing and still grow as a company. And, you know, obviously customer success has a role, part of the product has a role, but you need to design your packages so that there's more that you can sell into the customer. And you need to design pricing that you can grow as the customer gets more value from the product. So as they're using the product more, as more folks in the company are using it, or as you can bring on more business units within the company. And generally that should have multiple axes. And I see a lot of companies get stuck because they go to unlimited flat rate pricing and the sort of the best package where there's only one package that they offer a customer and all, all of a sudden there's no real route to expand within the account. So that's certainly one. Another one that comes up is the pricing is just not value-based, right? So a lot of companies, when they're designing the metric that's behind their pricing, so the charging unit, like the, which is normally like users or usage or, you know, contacts or based on the employee count or whatever it is, a lot of people think about that metric from their internal perspective or based on what the product can do. But it needs to be based on how the customer sees value in your product. And number of users, just because it's historically been the most common metric in SaaS, doesn't mean it's right for your product. Your product might not be something that, you know, as more users are using the product, Companies are getting two, three, four x the value of it. Like a, a Wistia, which is in the video hosting space. Can you imagine if Wistia charged based on how many users are using Wistia? Like it's probably just a handful of people using Wistia in an account, even if they're getting millions of page views for their videos and you know generating tons of leads from their videos. So thinking, rooting your pricing to value from the customer's perspective, specifically around that charging metric. And then one more, just to give you a bonus one, is we talked about expansion, we talked about value-based, and the third one is that you don't really have a way to efficiently land new customers. And so this is where there's a lot of talk around like freemium strategies, free trial strategies, and other initiatives. I think that freemium might or might not be right for your business. That's like a whole separate conversation, but you need to have a way to effectively bring on new customers or if you can't sell a larger deal. And I think a great example is if you're trying to sell a deal into a a large company, but procurement is blocking you or you're above a certain purchase approval threshold where it's going to take a long time to get adopted. Do you have something that people can get started with, with a few users or on a team basis Maybe they can acquire that on self-service, on a self-service basis, start sharing the product, getting more value, and then you can expand from there. Like, what is your approach if to landing customers that is, is going to be an efficient way to just get more and more users onto the platform and paying for it? So to me, that's something that there's a lot that goes into it, but you, you need pricing that allows you to expand, to be rooted in value and to land new customers. So talk to me about what people tend to get wrong there. So what some people get wrong is that like they jump right to when they think about how do you effectively land a lot of new customers, they go right to freemium. And I think there's a lot of other interesting routes that you can uh, use. And freemium might be right for your business if you've got virality, a massive product opportunity in front of you. But 
a lot of times that you can actually leverage some of the power of freemium without just going straight to freemium product or what we would traditionally think of as freemium. I love the example of like HubSpot back when they were starting. They've since moved to freemium, but when they were starting, they had their website grader. And so you would go on, use the product to see how your website performs relative to your competitors and get some quick insights on what you could do to drive more traffic to your website and, and better get more contacts to market to. And then that naturally led into a conversation about HubSpot, but they got thousands and thousands of people to use this website grader product. And that it, it's nice because it didn't cannibalize any of what their core product offered, but it provided a great lead generation engine and teed up a great sales conversation to have with the target customer. Or in our portfolio, we also have, we've got a company called Pipeify and they're a process management company. A lot of the process management companies, like think about a ServiceNow or maybe a Pega Systems, they're kind of big, clunky, like really large enterprise deals. Pipeify has a product where you can start automating your process and integrate with powerful business systems to streamline business operations. And you can do that on a self-service basis, one process at a time. And so they might start with a customer paying $100 a month for one process well, processes are by nature collaborative. And once people start seeing how much better things are for using this product and how easy it was to set up, they start finding more and more processes in their organization. And all of a sudden, they've got dozens, if not hundreds of users in the organization and all of these processes on Pipeify. And they were able to disrupt a large legacy sort of enterprise competitor because they were basically the shadow IT. So I think that examples like that are really interesting ways of not necessarily using the classic freemium approach, but landing new customers by being able to disrupt existing ways of doing business and, and providing some value at a low cost. So there's a lot to dig into there. Let me start. I know I think I, you know, parking lotted value metrics and I'm going to do it again for a second. So let's, let's start with uh, packaging, right? You mentioned that as one of the first components on the pricing strategy and some things people can get wrong. You know, Salesforce, if I remember correctly, started with, you know, a single package, right? Is that a good place to start, especially as a, a small company or a new product offering? And how do you think about when to break it up into multiple packages? What's the impetus as far as, you know, timing? Yeah. So when you're starting, one package might be okay because it keeps the sales process just more efficient. It's easy to explain. You probably don't have the features built out for lots of different package differentiation or like the differentiation would look sort of not that credible, right? Because there's not enough features to do a significant differentiation on. But I think that pretty quickly in a company's life cycle, they need to start introducing multiple different packages because otherwise you set the expectation with your customers that they just keep getting more and more stuff over time and they're they're not going to make a trade-off over how much they're paying and what features they're getting. They're just going to get more and more for the same price over time. So you need to set that expectation early on. And I, I think that the ways of doing that, obviously the way that you know, is most common is good, better, best, right? Where there's three or maybe four packages. They go from like the most basic features, some better features, <laughs> and then like even more features that like an enterprise would need. I also think it's interesting to, to think about the use case. And if you can orient packages towards the use case of the 
what's, what's the customer trying to do with your product? So like, I love the LinkedIn approach where when you think about like when LinkedIn starting to monetize, the features they had were pretty much like you can search people's profiles, you can send messages to people, you can view, like see who's viewing your profile, things like that. Like it's kind of a basic set of product experiences, but they said, okay, who's going to get value out of doing this? Well, there's talent teams that are going to need to headhunt folks. They need to send a lot of messages. They need really robust search capabilities. And then they said, okay, well, like, what about the just typical executive that wants some of these capabilities, but maybe not to, they're not going to be using the product as their sort of core workflow, like a recruiter is. And then also sales teams and, you know, or job seekers, like there's all of these different use cases for the product. And initially the product experience probably wasn't all that different from those different use cases, but they built different packages around it and pricing models around it where the recruiter licenses are several thousand dollars because they know the value is there and these are core to the workflow of the recruiter. But then the sales package is quite a bit cheaper, but they can sell that to a large number of sales reps. And then the LinkedIn premium seed is you know quite a bit cheaper from there, but they can sell that as a consumer product to a very large audience of users of LinkedIn. So I think that if you have a similar type of business where you've got a platform that can be used a lot of different ways, trying to better understand the ways people want to use your product and building product experiences and packages for those use cases, to me is really interesting. So value metrics, right? That I've parking lotted twice now. Let's get back to that. Do people think about value metrics the right way? I feel like they tend to default to things they're comfortable with or used to like users. Yeah, a lot of, so users, certainly the most common, you know, I think it's sort of the legacy of SaaS, right? Like it's the earliest model. That's what Salesforce has been on. It's sort of like easy to wrap your head around. It's kind of easy to sell, but I think people aren't doing enough soul searching and customer research to figure out what's really right for their business and what's going to bring them the best customer economics. In a lot of cases, that's not user-based pricing. And I think users work well in a horizontal application, right? Where you can sell the same product into like anyone in a company. So like a Slack or a Salesforce, certainly users work fairly well. But if you're starting to look at a vertical application where you're selling into like real estate or healthcare, they're not seeing value based on how many users are using the, the platform. There's probably other metrics that are more relevant. And they, in certain industries, there probably just aren't enough users of the product in general where you're going to make a lot of money on a user-based pricing model. And so you start needing to really look hard at usage metrics or metrics that equate to the size of the customer. And then on a infrastructure software side, so selling to engineering teams and developers, users are... I would say one of the, the last pricing models I would pick because I think once engineers started realizing they could buy with AWS and pay based on exactly what they used, no more, no less, they started wanting to buy everything that way. And that actually means that it's great for actually land and expand because you can acquire someone at a really low usage rate and then dramatically increase their spend over time as the product gets stickier and as more and more folks are using it and they're using it more and more. So I would say, first of all, try to get creative, especially if you're not in a horizontal application, really look at 
usage metrics and metrics that represent the size of the customer. And you can do research on this. Is like you can do research with new products. You can test different ways of charging a customer. You could even you know use the sales team to sell with different pricing models, and then see what the economics are. How much does it cost to acquire those customers, and what does the retention look like? What kind of expansion do you see, and do you see better expansion or worse expansion with a usage metric? Interesting. I think that's something that people don't spend as much time thinking about as they really should. Definitely. I mean, it's something that I think it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning, where there's just not a whole lot of education out there around how to be testing these things. And I think people kind of know how important they are, but it's difficult to get right. There's not a whole lot of training out there on how to do it. And it's cross-functional. So people don't want to don't want to be responsible for something that impacts everyone. So talk to me a little bit about unique value metrics you've seen out there. Yeah. For one of our portfolio companies, a company in the commercial real estate space, so they provide a, a leasing and asset management tool. If you have large commercial buildings that have lots and lots of tenants and you want to really be able to manage that asset, they have a software that allows you to do that. And initially they charge based on the number of buildings in your portfolio that you wanted to manage. And that seemed really simple. It initially worked well as they were an early stage company to kind of have a fast sales cycle. People knew how many buildings they had in their portfolio that they could bring on the platform. But at scale, that really started to break because they realized that the price they were charging for someone managing the Empire State Building was the same as someone managing a small office park in the suburbs. And so they started migrating to a per square foot model, which just had a lot of beneficial impacts for the sales process and for their customers because the price was linked to the value that that customer saw. And it was just a lot better way of being able to sell a different price for those that had, you know, less valuable assets that were just going to see use the product less, get less value out of the product versus those that are managing like an Empire State Building. So that's one example where both metrics are not common metrics. Uh, this is a vertical SaaS business. So if you were just you know looking at how other SaaS companies charge, you wouldn't actually stumble across either of these. But it was something where they're trying to understand really their customers and their the use cases for their product and let that guide the metrics that they use for their pricing. Yeah, so that leads into an interesting question. So companies can implement price changes relatively easily. Communicating a price change to their customers, it has to scare them, right? In some cases, it's just, you know, your price for what you're already getting goes up from, you know, $50 to $75 a seat. In this case, you're talking about, you know, your price for the maybe the exact same software you're using is going to either go down potentially or increase potentially significantly based upon a move from a a building to a per square foot pricing model, right? So how do they implement and communicate these price increases? Yeah, it's a difficult proposition for SaaS businesses, not uncommon, but difficult to get right, certainly. I, I would I first say, make sure that you have confidence in the new model, right? So I've seen companies change pricing on their customers two, three, four times in a row, and like, whole scale model changes to their pricing, which is just causes a lot of confusion and angst from their customers. And so make sure you're really confident on a model. You probably tested it 
with new customers before you've rolled out to your existing cohorts. So I would start with that. Second off, I would make sure you give people plenty of notice and give a good reason why you're making the change and think from their perspective, like they're going to be skeptical, obviously, but what's the value for them? Why do you think this is a fair model for your customer base and for them? You know, what extra features have you delivered or extra benefits do they get in this new world versus what they had gotten when they signed up? So I would do all of those. And I would also try to have some flexibility where the customer has a choice. Uh, no one hates to be strong-armed in a negotiation, but to the extent that you can say, we're going to move you to X model, or you can grandfather on your existing model at a 20% higher price for the next year. Just giving people some choices allows them to feel better about the situation and more in control. So this isn't just something happening to them. So I think that's, that's really important and something that a lot of companies don't do. And do you, do you think it's easier to have and communicate a pricing increase if you're not changing the value metric at the same time? It's difficult to do both. I would say when you're changing the value metric, that's something where you're going to want to look to see if there's like a dramatically big impact on some of your customers. Like you might end up finding that some of your best customers might be seeing like two, three, four X change in your, in their price. And so like if you're making a change in the value metric, be really careful and look at customer by customer, what the impacts are going to be, and then have a plan for some of those accounts that are going to see a really kind of crazy high change. Maybe it's like you change the, the metric first and bring them on at a lower price per unit of that metric and then implement the price increase the next year. So it's sort of broken up or you, you know, you make that metric change, but you make them halfway, right? They're, they're not paying double, they're paying 50% more. So I would, I'd say it's difficult to do both just in the sense that when you make a change to the metric, there's going to be some outsized impacts. Like some people are going to see a lower price. Some people would see a much higher price. And so when you're doing that plus raising the price, you could have, you know, a handful of folks that are seeing just a really scary number (laughs) for what their price is going to look like next year and need a plan for that. So, you know, talking about price increases, like use Salesforce as an example, I feel like they started at like $20 a seat, but I know I've seen 50, you know, they've increased over time on their lowest end. I think the cheapest you can get in is like a hundred these days, maybe it's a little bit more. So we're talking about a doubling of price point over a period of time, albeit, you know, years on the consumer side, especially when it comes to software, that, that seems that customers are less receptive to that, say like Netflix, for instance, right? If they were to double their price point, I feel like there'd be a lot more consumer pushback. Is that true or is that just a misperception on my part? So I think that's somewhat true because like going back to some of our conversations earlier, businesses tend to be less price sensitive than consumers are. But, and I think for Salesforce, it comes partly down to the role that Salesforce has played for, in their customers. It went from I think more of a nice to have kind of solution to just a mission critical core infrastructure. Like they are the system of record and engagement for your customers. Like it's the source of truth for a lot of analytics in a company. They have a lot of products built on top of Salesforce. And so they're playing a role in their customers' businesses where they can charge more and people wouldn't be happy about it, but would accept it. I think with like a Netflix, it is a bit of a different environment, but I think Netflix actually has had some success raising prices more modestly than Salesforce has, but everyone thinks about the price increase back in the Quickster days when they 
uh, unbundled the streaming from the mail-in DVDs. But even more recently, they've been able to raise prices quite a bit on their online plans and their stock prices actually increased significantly because they realized there was very little price sensitivity when they raised prices. And I think that what they saw is they raised prices when they had, after they had launched a whole lot of exclusive content that, you know, when people are watching Stranger Things and all of these Netflix specific movies and you're now watching like Bird Box, uh, this is going to date this podcast, but <laughs> there's all of these, this great content out there that people value. So I think people started seeing a lot of value from Netflix and the timing was right. And they also, instead of this time, sort of just having one approach, everyone gets affected, you, you don't have any choices. They've been changing their pricing more recently in terms of introducing different packages and tiers. So they have, they still, I believe, have a basic plan that's still like $7.99, but you can't watch things in HD and only one person can watch something at a time. So most people look at that and go, oh, that's not right for me. But Netflix still has a low price point for the really price sensitive people out there. But then they charge a lot more if you want to start watching things in HD or ultra HD, if you want to have more and more people watching your Netflix account at the same time. So they have actually been able to raise prices because they've been able to increase their pricing power and find a a creative way to do that that doesn't cause uh, too much customer pushback. So let's, let's jump back to SaaS companies for a minute. Talk about how SaaS companies can maximize growth because I I think, and you might have a different perspective, but my perspective is SaaS companies really don't understand the power that pricing can have on their growth. Yeah, I mean, when you think about the levers that you have to grow a business, you can generate more customers or you can get your customers or your prospects to be spending more, right? Like that's fundamentally the options that you have. And to get more customers, you can go after new markets that you haven't served before, like going into the enterprise if you haven't sold in that space before, or you could hire a lot more sales folks, or you could spend a lot more on, on marketing. Basically anything on the customer acquisition side, you're looking at spending quite a bit of money in order to grow. On the revenue side, the nice thing of charging more, looking at ways to get creative with monetization is that these are typically things that can drive an impact on your growth without costing a whole lot more. Your cost of sale could potentially stay the same. Your win rate could stay the same, but all of a sudden you're making 25% more per customer. And I've seen that with several of our portfolio companies. And so when I think about optimizing growth, think about how much growth can you get from the lever And then what impact does it have on the rest of your business? And we start weighing all that out. Pricing is the most impactful thing that you can do to grow a business, followed probably by any retention efforts that you can look at. And then that's followed by customer acquisition. But fortunately, as as you probably know, customer acquisition is normally the, the first thing people look at and focus on when they're looking at optimizing growth. Yeah, I mean, companies spend a ton on customer acquisition. I would hazard a guess that they don't spend 150 of of that looking at, you know, pricing packaging. Exactly. (laughs) So hopefully we've inspired some people today to take a fresh look. So let's talk a little bit more about that word growth, right? We see that word a lot in the product management community, and there's a lot of companies creating and hiring growth roles. And that's been a trend for a little while now. I mean, do you think there should be a specific growth role? I struggle with this. And I was actually talking to uh, the former head of growth from SurveyMonkey. And she said, wait, you want me to be responsible for 
the company's growth. Like my, my job is growing the company. Like that's a lot of pressure for one person. And to me, the growth shouldn't necessarily be like one person's job at a company. It should really be a mindset and a culture and everyone needs to be empowered into that. And so I think sometimes a growth role, what that essentially person is doing or that team is doing is that they're creating a much more analytical environment for the company to operate in. They're, and they're enabling a lot more experimentation and testing, and they're using data to try to drive optimization in every part of the funnel. So everything from acquisition, conversion, monetization, and retention efforts. And so you could certainly have a growth person or a growth team if your company doesn't have that culture, but you don't need to have a growth team to do that. And you can start empowering employees in different roles, create potentially cross-functional teams, maybe make a team of a great sales rep, a marketing person, a customer success person, and a product person that takes a look at your sales funnel and tries to diagnose where there's friction points that are causing dropout where they can optimize it. So I think that there's, there's a lot of things that companies can do without just going and hiring a growth role. It's because you, the, the goal at the end of the day is empowering everyone in the company to look for gaps, be analytical in terms of measuring customer acquisition all the way through the funnel and try to be creative about solutions that are going to fix that. And also being okay when some of those tests don't work out because a lot of them are going to fail, but then the ones that succeed are going to drive a lot of your growth. So let's turn the focus of this to the future. What upcoming trends do you see in product management and in SaaS in general? Well, first off, <laughs> to the point before, I think product management is going to get more data-driven and it needs to be. I think a lot of product managers, or if you think about like a lot of people's reaction to product is that it's like this craft and there's a lot of intuition involved and that a lot of that is great, but there are products out there that allow software teams to get way more data-driven in the way they build products and manage the products to the life cycle. And so you don't have any excuses if you're not measuring product adoption or the speed of adoption or which different features in the product cause customers to be the stickiest. They're just You can't just uh, measure that based on intuition or a few customer interviews anymore. Product teams need to be more data-driven. And I think they also need to be data-driven with managing their engineering teams as well. So to me, that's a key trend that we've seen in 2018. I mean, Pendo's been a big part of this trend, but we should see it more and more in 2019 as well. And then I hope to see product managers paying more attention to monetization. Yeah, I I definitely think they should. And if if they listen to this podcast, maybe they will. It's it's very interesting. I I like your word of, you know, we talk about the craft of product management and having been involved in the product management field for a, a while now, I feel like it's moved from, you know, that art, maybe even the dark art of product management to now a craft. I don't know that it's yet that, you know, the science of product management, but I, I definitely see it moving in that direction. Definitely. So let's turn this a little bit to, to Kyle, you know, finish up with a couple questions. Let's start with what's your favorite product? Uh, so my favorite product right now, and this is a bit of a plug for a portfolio company, <laughs> but it's Calendly. And so I use Calendly to schedule meetings. I meet with a lot of people outside of OpenView and it is just such a lifesaver. I can't even 
begin to think about how much sanity it's <laughs> saved me from not going back and forth with scheduling. I think scheduling emails have been the bane of my existence and caused a lot of frustration. And so just to have something so easy to use like Calendly is, is amazing. Yeah, I know I've dabbled in that. I feel like I now need to just wholeheartedly endorse my usage of Calendly and even pronounce it right and not call it Calendarly as I <laughs> have to do. But yeah, great, great product. Finally, you know, one final question for you. Uh, three words to describe yourself. Oh, that's a tough one. I'd probably go with curious. I'm always hungry for a new challenge, always wanting to solve something new. And then analytical. I always try to look for numbers and things. Even even when I do qualitative interviews, I create charts out of them. <laughs> and then caffeinated. If you couldn't tell, I am a I am caffeinated right now and I am very into coffee. And so everything from brewing coffee, drinking coffee, anything coffee related. Yeah. Do you have any favorite coffee related products? I love a toddy cold brew maker. I've had one actually for like 12 years now. I was an early adopter, but I just about every week I brew a batch of cold brew with, with my toddy. Awesome. We'll have to check it out. Well, thank you, Kyle. This was amazing. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.